0: And welcome to this bonus edition of the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Naftali Serrano. I'm the Executive Director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, the official sponsor of the Integrated Care Podcast. Today, this is a bonus edition podcast, sort of an extra podcast you can take with you on a walk, on a drive, maybe on a long family vacation in the car when you want to tune out the kids, stick those headphones in and listen in. We don't have the team here. Today, we just had some extra interviews that we've had in our pockets for a while. We wanted to make sure we got them out to you. So we thought, hey, why not put out an an additional uh, podcast uh, for the month of August? So some really cool stuff. Our first interview is of Dr. Ronald Epstein. He's a professor of family medicine, psychiatry, and oncology at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Um, And what's interesting about Dr. Epstein, among many things, is that he really came of age professionally at the burgeoning of the biopsychosocial model which of course was pioneered there at rochester by george engel and not surprisingly dr epstein among his many accomplishments was named the first george engel and john romano dean's teaching scholar at U of R. So he gives us a little bit of history, a little bit of perspective on where the integrated care movement has come uh, and where it may be going. Um, and so uh, take a listen here to Dr. Ron Epstein. Now, a- after Dr. Ron Epstein's interview, we then have an interview from Andrew Phillip. He's the executive director, I'm sorry, the deputy director at the Center for Integrated Health Solutions. Um, it's a HRSA, SAMHSA initiative which you'll hear more about in the interview and he gives us a little bit more about sort of the current state of integrated care where he sees things are where they're going how uh, he uh, at the center for Integrative health solutions um, works uh, providing some technical assistance for sites, etc. We're good friends with the folks at uh, the Center for Integrated Health Solutions, so we hope you really enjoy the interview with uh, Dr. Philip as well. So, interviews with Dr. Epstein from U of R and uh, Andrew Philip from uh, CIHS. We hope you enjoy this bonus edition. Um, here you go. If you were
1: to think about the geographical location of Rochester and speak a little, little bit to the importance of Rochester in the development of the biopsychosocial science. How would you describe that history for our audience?
2: Um, Rochester was um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, a an incredibly progressive place medically speaking, and a lot of that had to do with the influence of George Engel and his colleague John Romano, um, who um, established uh, an approach to clinical care that I think has uh, persisted here um, uh, uh, since uh, since those days, and it really um, predated the concepts of patient-centered care and person-centered care and family-centered care um, uh, with its attention on the whole person Uh, so that i think is the thing that's really um, unique about here and that's what attracted me here in the first place Uh, and a lot of people came to rochester uh, for that reason
1: right okay so you did your family medicine residency training there
2: Yes, I did. I did. So I went to medical school at Harvard, and okay. uh, during my third year, I wrote a letter to this guy uh, who I had never met, but had heard of and read a couple of articles by uh, George Engel,
0: okay. and
2: basically um, told him that I, although my education in some senses was really excellent, um, I felt that there was a real disconnect that uh, that uh, patients were being treated as diseases and not much more than that, and mm-hmm. There wasn't much attention to the relationship between doctors and patients. Um, now, clearly, there were exceptions. There there were fabulous clinicians, right. but um, but I think the overall zeitgeist was was very biotechnically oriented, and he seemed to have another approach. And his answer was, "Well, come to Rochester and check us out," which is exactly what I did, um, and uh, and found that what he was talking about, in fact, did exist. It was true.
1: Wow, and so. In and around that time, what was in the literature uh, about patient-physician relationships and other things?
2: Well, the article in question was his 1977 article in Science, and his follow-up in 1980 in uh, I think the American Journal of Psychiatry. Um, both of which described this model of care that um, was radically different than you know kind of usual care. Um, right. And there wasn't um, I wasn't aware of. A real lot. Besides that, I mean, I was a medical student. I wasn't a, you know, I was
1: researcher. In
2: my rotations and didn't have a lot of time for reading. But it, um, but uh, I think that's what, um, that that's what, I I found. And then uh, and then, uh, once I got here, there were many other avenues to explore.
1: Excellent. If you were to tell us a little bit about the kind of person George Engel was and uh, what do you think it was about him that allowed him to develop such a comprehensive framework uh, to work with patients and families?
2: Um, Yeah, he, um, George was one of the most astute observers of human behavior that I've ever come across. He just had a way of um, being curious about people and finding out what their lives were like. So Mm -hmm. for example, if someone had chest pain, he would ask them, well, what what were they doing at the time of the chest pain? Well, I was walking upstairs. Well, why did you, why were you walking upstairs? Well, I was going to my studio. Well, what do you do in your studio? Well, I paint. Okay. And and so then you kind of get this vivid picture of this person, this whole person and how the illness fit into their lives. And he was really well known for that. Um, And he had a way of, gaining patients' trust and confidence that they would reveal things to him that often you know, clinicians taking care of these patients for years didn't know. So he had this curiosity about humanity, and he also had a real sense of presence. You knew that he was listening to you. He would gesture. He had kind of some characteristic gestures that he would use, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and you knew he was all there, that he was really interested in what was going on. He wasn't thinking necessarily about... Um, Uh, uh, something else or putting the patient in a category. He really wanted to know this person who happened to be a patient.
1: Right. So he really focused on context. There was a deep curiosity about humanity. And it looks like he was very attentive and present with his patients. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And would you say some of that is what led to your current research and writings on attending and mindfulness and and the trajectory into burnout?
2: Um, Well, the trajectory into burnout is is, is kind of more recent. But I I think that um, he embodied uh, some aspects of mindfulness and and attentiveness that I I really tried to emulate and then tried to describe. uh, Okay because george talked a lot about the nature of the relationship but sometimes didn't really parse out exactly what it was that he was doing that in a way he was so skilled that sometimes it was hard for him to describe his own skill uh so i tried to do do a bit of that by by observing him and other exemplary clinicians
1: okay in your training with him and in your years with him are there one key event or two key events that stand out that really impacted you even to this day?
2: Um, well, there are lots, but one was we went into a patient's room uh, to interview the patient and find out what was going on with them. And mm-hmm. um, and after we left, uh, um, uh, he he said, you know, what, what didn't you notice? That <laughs> was his question. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, a zen question you know what what's the sound of one hand clapping right and just that question made everyone acutely aware that there were no flowers there were no cards there was no evidence that there was another human being who cared about this person okay. and and it was kind of a stunning realization because without just that simple question um that fact would have eluded many of us and then you know we went back in the room and 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 asked well Who's in your life? Uh, you know who's there for you, and it turns out there wasn't really much of anybody in their lives. Um, and and so um, that itself became an an important um, area for intervention. I mean, you know, just right. you know, part of the problem with caring for, for the part of the reason this person was hospitalized was because they didn't have enough social social connections to assure right. that they could know, get, get out of it there, there at home. And he basically figured that out just by looking at the room.
1: Right, like a very uh, acute observation of what was going on.
2: Yeah, yeah. so that would be one, one example. And he also talked a lot about himself, you know, his own illnesses, his own family history, which uh-huh. was pretty extraordinary. Um, and uh, and uh, in a way used himself as uh, as part of his laboratory. Uh, so, okay. you know, he, he he drew upon his own experience in a way to inform the kind of
1: care that he would give to others. So there was a good judgment of therapeutic self-disclosure to help patients Yeah,
2: with I them. mean, sometimes it was a little bit um, too much information. For example, he was fascinated with when his hemorrhoids bled. Okay. And, <laughs> And and apparently they would bleed like every year on his mother's birthday or something, you know, but your imagination (laughs) runs wild why that might be the case. But um, (laughs) that was a little too much information.
1: That's right, right. Um, One of the things that helped me early on in my training, I attended a conference where you really talked about the role of behavioral health professionals or behavioral medicine as being a larger component of medicine and medicine being a smaller component of human behavior in patients' lives, Um, how would you articulate for some of our younger professionals in how you see uh, behavioral health, behavioral medicine as a core part of uh, patient-centered care that we can do?
2: Well, my uh, (laughs) my first response is, what medicine is not behavioral? Right. Right, I mean, all medicine is behavioral. Um, and so the question is, what's the domain and what's the lens that you're looking at uh, when you're when you're encountering a patient or um, or a patient and family, and and uh, how do you um, uh, and how does that point of view, that perspective that you take, alter the care that you that you provide? So behavioral medicine specialists, people who have special training, have are particularly adept at. Uh, dealing with certain aspects of illness. You know, radiologists are are adept at other aspects of illness. Uh, and right. so um, I don't really see a divide. I mean, I, I think it's it's Excellent. artificial in a way. It's historical. Right. But really, uh, that all of those areas of specialty really contribute to how we can adequately take care of someone. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some who say, well, you know, if it's a social problem, we call the social worker. If someone starts crying, we call the psychologist. Right. And my view, that's that's pretty narrow-minded. Uh, I think we all need a modicum of skills in all of those domains. Right. And when it's it getting more compli- complicated, that's the point at which we need to call on specialists. specialist. And everyone has their threshold.
1: Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. And from the time of your training to where you are now, what would you say you have witnessed in the world of integrated care um, as it has evolved and continues to evolve?
2: By integrated, you mean integrated between behavioral medicine specialists and, uh, and let's say, physician, non-psychiatric physicians.
1: Right. So, yeah, I think integrated behavioral health. And I know the world of integrated care is sort of uh, blossoming and growing. Uh, but I guess the your perspectives on the initial integration of behavioral health and primary care and other medical settings, and then you know the role of community health workers, peer support specialists dietitians nutrition so that world is growing
2: yeah Yeah. no i mean in in our family medicine center it's 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 kind of so taken for granted that it's a non-issue right we know that there are behaviors uh, uh, behavior you know there are psychologists and social workers and caseworkers, and they're all part of a team and Mm -hmm. um and you call upon them depending upon the needs of a particular patient so i think that um and maybe our setting is extraordinary but it's it's like it's 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 gotten to a point where it's 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 nothing special it's business as usual now right. clearly i know that in, in medicine in general that's not the case uh, but where i work it is and and also in the palliative care setting we work in in multidisciplinary teams okay you can't do the work if you don't work in a team like that i mean you, it's just impossible so um, so that's also another you know but of course a moment and and often the service that we provide in the inpatient setting is um, is bringing together these disparate clinicians so that everyone's speaking the same language. And, and, and that's the intervention that we do. Uh, so in a way, that's a behavioral intervention.
1: Right, right, yes, I can see that. In yeah. terms of, where would you say medicine would be without something? Uh, as astute and comprehensive as the biopsychosocial spiritual model today.
2: Well, it, it, I, I think that um, in many corners, that model has been supplanted or replaced by other uh, other ideas like patient-centered care or person-centered care or um, uh, you know integrated care so i'm not right. sure that as many people are using the word biopsychosocial as they might have 15 or 20 years ago okay. and that's fine because um it first of all it's clumsy that's a long okay. word <laughs> right and also it's um uh things evolve and and so george uh engel while well, while well, he recognized the importance of family he worked mostly with individual patients. He didn't have family. He wasn't talking with families in a particular room in general. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, he was very individual focused and saw family as context. Uh, whereas a family therapist would see fa- the family as the patient. And right. so, you know, that you need different words for that. Uh, so I think, but I think where medicine, uh, I, I th- I, I think in that era, it was, there was a confluence. So around the same time Ian McQuinney was developing the patient-centered model. And, okay. and, and so I think the times really called for that for two reasons. One is that medicine became increasingly technological and was forgetting about, that it was really about people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the second is that, um, that uh, patients were, were demanding something else. Patients were becoming more active and asking questions. And so they weren't merely the, the passive recipients of care.
1: Right. So it was a bi-directional multi-directional right. influence right. that really got there. Okay. Um, in in the past few months, uh, what are some of the things that you're reading and people that you're listening to that's been really impacting your thinking, your clinical practice, or teaching?
2: Well, one book that I'm reading is a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett called How Emotions Are Made. Okay. Um and um and you know, it may say, sound a bit a bit removed from uh, from everyday clinical practice as a family doctor, but her point is, is that um, uh, that uh, that emotions are things that happen to us. We actually construct them, and mm-hmm. the same set of circumstances provoke different emotions in different people because right. they construct them differently. Uh, so. At least, you know, in in many corners of, of psychology, it was thought that emotions were universal—that the same kind of event would provoke the same kind of emotion—and she could kind of blows that that theory out of the water. So, I I, I, I find the book really quite interesting. Um, another, um, um, uh, uh, oh, let me just think. I'm just trying to. Um, recall the author, I'm sorry. But no um, another, another uh, it'll come to me in a minute, but another um, realm is um, is um, uh, a book called Experience and the Creation of Meaning. And okay. it, the, the, the thesis of that book is that, um, Experiencing and the Creation of Meaning, is that um, that meaning is created through the direct apprehension of experience and not necessarily through the interpretation of that experience. Again, it's a very radical um, idea. But um, as clinicians, we have these very visceral experiences, and then we put words to them. And in some cases, those words enhance our understanding uh, and provide meaning. But in other situations, they don't quite get there. And it's just the raw uh, experience itself that it, it can be more instructive. So, like, in the philosophical realm, those are two books that i uh, I've just been um, uh, um, uh, have have influenced my thinking.
1: Okay, and I think uh, is it Eugene Gentlin?
2: Yes, yes, yeah Eugene Gentlin. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I should it, for some reason to escape me. No,
1: no worries. And yeah. just to sort of close it off, what are some of the big questions in your mind right now uh, as a clinician, as a researcher, and and an educator?
2: Um, one of the big questions is how to use technology to enhance the connection between clinicians and patients. And some, in some senses, it does. In some senses, it's, it's divisive. Right. The second is um, how to help clinicians apprehend their own experience more fully so they can actually be more present for patients. So that's where the work in mindfulness comes in. That is rather than turning away from difficult emotional reactions to clinical situations, helping clinicians develop the resilience, awareness and fortitude to actually turn towards those somewhat negative and difficult emotions that arise in practice. Uh, my theory is that by turning away from those, it actually creates more stress than actually apprehending them more, more directly. Uh, the right. third question it has to do with um, uh, uh, with parsing of attention. Uh, with okay. electronic health records and increased complexity of care, uh, there are all these opportunities to distract your attention from focus on the patient as a person. And how mm-hmm. are we going to navigate that. That's part of, that's a marker of progress in medicine, but it also has a dark side. So those are are three questions that I'm I'm living with now.
1: That's very good. Thank you so much for your time. We're very excited to learn a little bit more about the historical significance of uh, Rochester and to get an inside glimpse into uh, George Engel's words and his work that has touched a lot of our lives and probably impacted our career trajectories quite a bit.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Great. Our thanks to Deepu George for conducting that interview and, of course, to Dr. Epstein. Now we turn our attention to Andrew Phillip, the Deputy Director of the Center for Integrative Health Solutions. I'm here with Andrew Phillip, Deputy Director of the Center for Integrated Health Solutions. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Sure.
3: Thanks, Natali. We're uh, glad to be here and and always really glad to connect with CFHA and and all of your members.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that that makes this relationship uh, work so well is that you have a personal sort of experience and background in integrated care. So before we jump into what the Center for Integrated Health Solutions is about, uh, could you give us a sense of what your own experience has been in the world of integrated care?
3: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I got started integration back when I was in grad school in uh, actually Auburn, Alabama, and uh, it hadn't been an interest of mine. Originally, I was interested in addictions, but um, through a few different experiences, I started dabbling in, uh, I suppose, the medical side of behavioral health. So working in things like, units you know, like palliative care. Uh, I worked in a level one trauma center with a burn unit, um, neurology, and I got to really work with um, a whole host of different types of physicians who, honestly, many of them weren't really sure how to use a psychologist or, or where we fit in. And so it was kind of a, a joint process of figuring out of sorts of, of really um, how to make things work and how to really understand both acute and chronic conditions um, with a behavioral health lens. And um, so from those experiences, I, I worked a for about a year in a small rural community health clinic, um, largely for um, folks who were getting their support through Medicaid-based services, so really didn't have a lot of touch points with us. And so we had oftentimes, and it was a family medicine residency clinic, so we had one touch point per year with just about everybody. And in that time, we often only had about uh, 12 to 20 minutes to, to really do anything with them. And so it really um, I had to dissect all of my, you know my my clinical psychologist training to think about, well, what can I do for somebody who has a chronic medical condition in really the smallest imaginable point of time? And often that was, um, well, first working with uh, the medical residents and then thinking about you know how to give the most bang for their buck to all of our patients. So I took those lessons with me when I moved into the the VA's healthcare system. and there we helped start up um, uh, an integrated primary behavioral health clinic. Um, was, was pretty robust in just our clinic alone. We served um, uh, over 100,000 veterans and we had about four of those where we then replicated the services. So as a, a you know, behavioral health provider in a primary care clinic, I, I became intimately familiar with just, how do you start these programs up? What are the considerations? How do you navigate thinking about, well, how many you know FTEs do we need per um, primary care clinician? How do we negotiate those relationships? Who owns the patient? And then how do we think of treatments that actually work within a a time-based setting? Um, So I did that for some time, uh, really enjoyed it, and then moved into um, uh, a consultative role with Department of Defense um, as a national trainer, um, working in their integrated efforts as they rolled out similar programming, really everywhere there's a primary care clinic. And and now here I am with with the Center for Integrated Health Solutions and more of a kind of an oversight role, but getting to see integrated care from a a community-based perspective.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about that. What what role does the Center for Integrated Health Solutions play, um, and what's its mission?
3: Yeah, so um, so we're we're a, a center. We're we're run by and I'm employed by the National Council for Behavioral Health, a large um, behavioral health focused nonprofit. But the center is actually funded by SAMHSA and HRSA, so through the federal government. And we're essentially one of the largest training and technical assistance centers related to integration, and a lot of the work that we do is looking at um, uh, particularly safety net provider organizations. So those out there in the community who are really serving um, the most vulnerable populations that that you know that are out there, folks who um, aren't just in need of integrated primary and behavioral healthcare, but are really just in need of basic healthcare services to begin with. Um, and so what we do is we provide trainings through all sorts of virtual methods. So um, webinars, um, we're moving into a lot of roundtable type discussions, so interactive discussions with experts in the field um, where the audience can also join in. Um, so we work with folks who are primarily in behavioral health settings or primarily in behavioral health care settings, either doing you know, integration or what we call reverse integration. So um, we look at all aspects of integrated care. And we also convened large meetings. So just this past year, we had one of the largest meetings of um, uh, federal stakeholders in telehealth and telemedicine that all came together to try and work through some of the critical issues and really expanding access to telehealth services. Um, and I think one of the ways in where we, that makes us, one one thing that makes us unique is that we, um, we're one of the few um, organizations who can provide free training and technical assistance to literally anybody in the country. And so we have a whole national training arm, which is part of our, char- part of our charge through the federal government to really spread this type of care and give people the tools that they um, that they
0: really need. Now, you mentioned that this is obviously a SAMHSA-HRSA initiative. Um, yeah. A lot of folks are vaguely aware of what those uh, eight arms do. <laughs> Um, Maybe explain a little bit about what they do and then also explain why they would be interested in jointly funding an activity like this. Yeah, that's
3: a great question, and you know I think we're all overly guilty of uh, living in an acronym-based world. So, uh, SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's really the federal government's main arm that is particularly concerned with um, with the mental health of our country, uh, and HRSA is the uh, Health Resource Service Administration. So they're funded through HHS, uh, which is you know our country's largest healthcare arm, and um, SAMHSA puts out a number of, um, well, they put out many grants related to mental health, of course, and there's a number of them um, that are specifically related to integrating primary and behavioral health care. Um, so those grants are usually about four year grants and they go out to healthcare organizations who are just starting their integrated care services. And so when they're giving out millions and millions of dollars, one of the important parts of that is, well, not only can we give the money, but how do we actually make sure that there's some increase in skill or abilities or understanding of integration, the logistics of integration, the building blocks to make sure that those programs flourish and then, of course, continue after the grant periods end. Um, so SAMHSA and HRSA both offer similar grants to their uh, different constituencies. And so we come along with those grants as the training arm and help with factoring sustainability. Um, and HRSA, um, you know, I think a, a number of um organizations member individuals who are members of CFHA may also be um, federally qualified health centers or HRSA-funded health centers. And so um, we also provide training to um, HRSA's Bureau of Primary Health Care uh, health center recipients, so health centers who receive some sort of funding through um, its HRSA affiliation. So, and that's really the, if you think about health centers, that's the third largest um, integration provider in our country when you factor in the DoD and the VA. Um, so this is really a huge um, set of providers, again, who are really focused on the safety net and underserved populations. Um, so that's about how those two agencies are interested in integration. So they're pushing money out. They're trying to further, again, on a national level, Level um, the integration of primary and behavioral health services. SAMHSA also has a very vested interest in uh, Americans living with serious mental illness and substance abuse conditions. So that's a particularly strong focus, particularly in the current administration uh, of SAMHSA.
0: Now, given that, do you have a sense uh, that those that interest in integrated care um, and those the the money that goes with it? Do you have a sense that any of that interest has changed, waned, strengthened um, over the last year or so? Uh, It's a question that a lot of people have as lots of things change at the federal level, obviously.
3: Sure. That's a great question. You know, when I when I first started here at the center, um, it's only not too long ago, actually, I came right as the 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 federal administration was changing when President Trump uh, came into office. And so it was a very interesting time. To uh, to move positions, and you know, I've always been involved in some type of federal healthcare, but particularly into community-based healthcare, which you know, there's often concerns about funding. Um, and I'll say that um, you know, I think much to all of our uh, pleasant, uh, I don't know if it's surprise or expectation, but um, funding has not particularly waned. In fact, uh, we've seen some increases. So particularly um, funding related to the opioid epidemic, and that can be tied in with that, has increased. Um, we've had um, increases compared to the past eight years or so of services that we're able to provide to hersa uh, funded organizations, so that's increasing, too. And an interesting change that's just happened this past year um, with regards to the funding through SAMHSA is that they're moving from offering... Integration related grants to individual organizations. And now the money is being dispersed at a state level um, so that the states are actually working in partnership with their local organizations and, and healthcare networks to come up with um, more of a coordinated plan for integration. And I think that's so critical because. You know, whenever we're talking about integration, we have to talk about money, right? And, 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 and regulations and, and who can be reimbursed and what types of services can really be counted. And so, forming those partnerships at the state level can be so critical in making sure that, you know, the well intended laws and regulations that are put into the pace of place at the state level actually have an outcome on the ground that makes sense for people doing the work and people receiving the care. So, those are some, some big changes that have happened in the past year that I think are, are actually very positive and that will continue moving forward.
0: So that's really interesting. Uh, So would it be your hope or perhaps observation that um, by sort of distributing the money more or tying it more towards the state level, that the state would become more potentially aware and maybe even incentivized to make sure to streamline processes so that they fit what an integrated care model actually looks like?
3: you know i think that's um certainly so some of that is built into way the the way that these grants work and that there has to be certain levels of communication there have to be the types of metrics that they're reporting are very much linked to things like access and who's actually um, improving health outcomes and these are all intricately tied of course with integration these are some of the, the fundamental goals um but i would say yes absolutely i mean the idea is so the state is really they're making the determinations of who's getting the money and 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 you know what proportion of the money is going to any given organization and so they have a vested interest um, when we have meetings we're involving state level entities and and um, rule lawmakers and, and and their stakeholders in the conversations along with health those health organizations so i think there's no way that we won't really see much uh you know that we wouldn't see improvement there because you know they're having these conversations. They're they're looking at the same exact outcomes now, um, and in the past, uh, you know, from just our conversations with um, with our national council member organizations and also grant recipients, there's it almost always feels like they're you know they all want the same outcomes, but they're they're looking at totally different things. They're going about it different ways, and there it's rare that they're. It's rare that the the health provider organizations and the state-level officials are all actually gathered in the same room at the same time. Sometimes they're not even sure how to communicate with each other. So I think this can really be quite revolutionary.
0: Yeah, that's going to be an interesting um, interesting uh, thing to see develop over the next few years. It oh, yeah. kind of reminds me a little bit of the uh, the uh, federal grants that were uh, handed out on a pilot basis to certain states a few years back. Um, and now it looks like this is more of a uh, change in strategic initiative. Yeah, and you
3: know, one more thing, just relate to that is uh, we, and talking about um, uh, projects and pilot projects. Another big focus uh, that's just emerging now has been uh, CCBHCs or um, community-based behavioral health centers. And that's kind of like the the federal um, version of uh, or a, a behavioral version of an FQHC, almost similar kind of funding mechanism. And so that's a new, also a new area. And we're providing some of the training and technical assistance um, at the center that's coming along with with that money too. And that's another area where we certainly hope to see an expansion. There's there's so many states right now that um, weren't able to get in on the very first round of funding. But it's um, we're certainly anticipating that that will continue and that we'll be able to expand that and see those types of services in addition to the traditional behavioral health um, grant funding opportunities expanding to, to many more states. And, and that can really be when we're talking about workforce shortages and, 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 and financial planning that can really be an important um, factor.
0: Yes, and I'm glad you you mentioned that because uh, one of the uh, worlds that CFHA members are probably less aware of because most of our folks are in the primary care realm, Um, but there's a growing number of folks in that realm of operating out-of-community uh, mental health centers. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's these two movements here that are are overlapping and related, right? Sure. Of these uh, behavioral health homes and the certification process around that that you referenced. And then what you talked about before related to this whole idea of reverse integration, mm-hmm. right? So can you give a thumbnail sketch of, of what you see um, in those developments nationally. Are, are folks making headway as far as really developing this um, sort of health home approach within community mental health centers? And, and how is that tied to the idea of integrating primary care into those centers?
3: Yeah, uh, you know, it's, I think that's an important question to ask. And, and we're still finding out the answer to that. Um, I've been really pleasantly, you know, coming from more of a, a primary care focused environment um, in my own background, it's been really interesting to see um, how uh, more traditional, you know, community behavioral health organizations have been embracing the need for primary care. Um, you know, I think we're all aware that for now, for Decades, we've been aware that, you know, people living with serious mental illness are dying so much earlier, you know, essentially decades earlier also. Um, and, and really, there's nobody who's not seeing that. And there's also a fundamental recognition that um, for many individuals particularly those who are living with serious mental illness they're not getting their care in the same place that um, that other Americans are they may not be going to a traditional primary care organization um, they may not be getting their their services in an Fq for example if they have access to that they're probably you know if they're if they're getting services there's a high likelihood if they're already wrapped into a behavioral health organization that's that's really want, where they want to stay and exist um, and, and where they're going to be most accessible again among the SMI spectrum. Um, and so we, we're seeing more of an uptake in that. We're seeing um, um, more relationship building between behavioral health organizations and sometimes separate primary care agencies where they'll open up some sort of shared medical records system where they'll sometimes, you know, if they're at the earliest stages of integration and maybe they haven't even co-located yet, they'll have some borrowed time where a primary care um, you know, cluster group will come into the behavioral health organization for a couple days a week. So we're starting to see the beginnings of these things picking up. I'll say it's still... We still have, I think, some years to go before we see really true high-level integration happening um, across most of the um, traditional behavioral health community organizations. Um, But we're seeing more and more of that. And that's some of the coaching that we're doing is, um, you know, kind of meeting folks where they're at the same way we would in an integrated behavioral healthcare environment, right? So when we work with organizations, finding out, you know, what are their boards ready to start doing? Um, What is their infrastructure support right now? What are their finances support and just eking them forward to the highest levels of integration. But we take just like, again, you know, we use the same terminology, right? And no wrong door approach using these same kinds of ideas. Um, But it's certainly, um, you know, it's a different world. There's there's a little bit more education among the providers that's needed to feel comfortable in addressing um, health outcomes and health concerns, talking about, you know, hypertension and, uh, you know, know, uh, A1Cs and things like that, that in in traditional primary care environments are so commonplace. And we're still breaking down some of those silos, but I think they're, I've been pleasantly surprised at the investment and just the energy that community behavioral health organizations are putting into um, really folding in more comprehensive uh, medical services.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad that you're, uh, you're providing a very honest assessment of where <laughs> things are. Uh, as you know, CFHA also provides technical assistance services, yeah. and we find many of the same issues um, across the board, uh, that that they are that every site is certainly at a different level. Um, in general, the movement in community mental health centers is a little bit further behind than the yeah. integration movement in primary care. That doesn't mean they won't get there, um, and I'm, yeah. I think we're all hopeful that they will get there. Um, and yeah. do some really good work.
3: Absolutely. I mean, speaking, of, you know, talking about the connection with CFHA, I'll say just um, this past year, I was at the CFHA, CFHA conference with you, and we in uh, Houston, right? Um, and I was so ple- pleasantly surprised. I, I met one of our grantees, our one of our uh, SAMHSA grantees, who's right there um, You know, from, uh, I think they're in South Texas at a behavioral health organization. And um, they were there highlighting just the excellent work they're doing. They have the whole team. They have their pharmacist. They have their dietitian. They have their you know primary and behavioral health care providers. Um, they're coming up with a really nice, um, sort of like a hub and spoke kind of model with, with their kind of main center and then some of their smaller offices. And so you know, it's just one more example of, of you know their their the grant recipients we're talking about they're also CFHM members and they're really uh, for them it was so energizing to be at the conference and to to meet others because I think especially in. You know, in smaller, more rural community behavioral health organizations, these conversations aren't happening as frequently. So I was just so pleased to see and to continue to we'll see them there again next year when we're all there um, in Rochester uh, to see that kind of overlap and then to see the spread of ideas that can happen when we get people together who kind of all get the idea of integration are all moving towards similar tracks
0: yeah, and that that gets at uh, my final sort of question here around uh, a key area in in uh, building up the integrated care uh, movement, and that's workforce. Um, yeah. Our workforce is uh, spread out. It's um, often not terribly well connected. You alluded to this before as far as the grant uh, uh, the grant making process where if you're sort of providing a grant to an isolated clinic, then that clinic is sort of sticks out like a sore thumb in its community. It's the only one doing integrated care. Um, and so that, that remains a persistent challenge. I'm just curious from your vantage point as you're providing uh, technical assistance, as you're seeing the landscape um, and you see sites struggle with developing an integrated care workforce, a workforce that is trained, that knows what it needs to do, um, that can sustain and retain uh staff effectively for this kind of work or perhaps an organization that has to re rejigger its staff sometimes Mm -hmm. and to, to get folks in there who really catch hold of this vision um what are what are some of the broad recommendations that you would have for an organization to to have a sustainable workforce and if you can put your sort of magical hat on and what would you hope for down the road um would happen to to build a more sustainable pipeline for the workforce. Sure. I'm just curious, your thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, I, and I totally you know I, I totally agree with Nafali. Interf- I think workforce development and and you know getting people engaged, keeping them engaged, thinking about things like burnout, but also just training are so critical. And you know we 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 pump in um, certainly a, a large amount of money, arguably not enough, but um, resources, time, energy into um, into making sure that we have protocols and making sure that we have evidence-based tools that can be used and making sure that we have the right kind of, You know a clinic grid set up to support handoffs and things like that but at the end of the day none of this stuff matters if the people who are actually providing the services either aren't comfortable aren't well enough trained or or you know don't really kind of embody the idea of integration so it's like and and i would argue that i think um probably the the smallest amount of, of our kind of all of our collective resources in the past has been going to like really that core training element um but i'd love to see more of that and i think I'm gonna. I'll kind of flip the order a little bit. So, you know, what I where I see the the biggest bang for the buck, or the the most important investment we could do, would be to um, investing um, more integration related efforts into our training programs, into our graduate training programs. Um, you know, I'll I'll say, you know, when I was in grad school, we didn't have a class in integration. We didn't have a class related to primary care. I, you know, I got through. I put together some clinical experiences for that. But, um, and, and thinking about, you know. Although, you know, I mentioned earlier that folks with SMN may be more likely to get their, you know, services in behavioral health organization, but for the average American, you know, as well as I, I do, most people are getting all of their services in primary care, regardless of what it's related to. And so to not have that included as a, as a, you know, a core class in any health related field, uh, just really doesn't make sense to me. And I, so I think that Um, you know, others, certainly, you know, CFHA, but, you know, our friends at the National Register of Health Service Psychologists and other partners that we've been, that we've been meeting in the field um, are really, you know, certainly DOD has been a pioneer in this, especially through the Air Force. The VA is the, you know, the largest trainer of psychologists in the country. Um, So the biggest players, uh, I think, are realizing this and are really investing in making sure that there's at least practicum experiences and and, and sort of postdoc experiences, but there's still not enough being done in the actual graduate training programs. And I've been, you know, I've talked to a lot of others in the field and when we're out at conferences together and meetings together of kind of musing about, well, what can be done about this? And there's this kind of question mark that's been um, existing of how do we get the graduate training programs to change what they're doing, right? Do you put a stronghold on them through their professional organization? You know, as we say, APA, you have to mandate this. Um, you know, is it another, you know, idea is do we ask that at the internship level that the that the training directors say, well, well, you know, what, one of the things we're looking for in this next crop of interns is that they've had some experiences integration. I think that could be an interesting way of doing it. Um, you know, there's there's folks out there like uh, ASU who are kind of building this into their curriculum, um, but that's certainly a minority of programs. So that's really, you know, otherwise what we're saying is we're taking an existing workforce who've been practicing potentially for you know, I've trained people who've been out in the field for you know 25, 30 years doing traditional mental health work, and it's um, and and now they're kind of scrambling to say, well, how do I, you know, how do I function in primary care? How do I work with an integrated care team? How do I see somebody in 30 minutes or less? And all those things. Uh, it's a huge transition. Um, and and it doesn't work out for everybody, honestly. And it's not quite right for everybody. So if we can get people trained, we can get people thinking about this earlier and earlier on, if we can bring in other health professionals so that we make integration not only part of the training programs for, um, you know, psychologists like you and I but, and social workers, but also, you know, nursing staff, uh, you know, we're working with with oral health folks, so dentists and Um, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of specialty programs, you know, I want urologists to be trained and stuff. Everybody, you know, who's in a healthcare environment should have some idea of what's going on with integration. So that's where I'd love to see us to go. I think for now, you know, when we're talking about the workforce, um, you know, certainly using, you know, TA from you guys, you know, RTA that's available, some of these kind of more comprehensive ongoing programs can be really valuable. Um, You know, certainly using, you know, on our website, which I'll I guess I'll mention in a minute before we close, you know, we have resources on the core competencies for, and I think there's different sets of core competencies, we have one others um, that are really required. So thinking about what are the types of questions you're asking when you're hiring new staff, asking them you know, more fundamental questions like, have you worked on teams before? How do you work with other types of disciplines? And if they're just saying, well, I don't know, I've always worked in an office by myself, that's gonna be a little bit more of a learning curve. Um, and then you know getting another thing you mentioned which is you know competition within the workforce so particularly in like smaller areas we're seeing you know community-based organizations kind of fighting with each other for a limited number of resources and so i think you know that's complicated i think we have to think about um, you know rural areas using telehealth and telemedicine to share staff that way and to and to get services out where they may not be when we're attracting candidates using things like national health service um, loan repayment programs and there's a lot of inv- information available through harsa for that um, so that we can bring in you know student loan strap providers and people who just you know, need a reason to come to some of these places, Um, you know, making sure that your organization's applying for those types of um, funding opportunities and using them, and then setting up connections with local training programs, I think is one of the other most valuable things, you know, the VA does a great job of this of saying, well, we know that if we can get somebody hooked in for just that one year of internship, or this couple years of of postdoc work, the likelihood of keeping them for one years, two years, three years, up to five years increases pretty dramatically. Um, That's how we shape the workforce, at least right now, at least from my experience.
0: That's excellent. And uh, now our audience knows why we're friendly with Andrew <laughs> and with CIHS. Thank you so much, Andrew. Andrew, you mentioned your website. so yeah. people want to learn more. Uh, yeah, it's a great plug. website. Lots of lots of great resources on there. Um, so uh, tell them where to go. Yeah.
3: So the, it's integration.samsa.gov. So integration.samhsa.gov. Um, our website is so easy to use. There's uh, about six or seven tabs at the top on everything from uh, workforce to operations, health and wellness, financing. So there's billing worksheets and other helpful tools there. Just click the tab you want. You'll be literally pretty much every single topic is covered we're also looking forward to featuring uh, more on the primary care behavioral health model and some of the resources through cfha's website as i said you know we have a lot of shared stakeholders and so um, you know i think you know our organizations are complementary and there's uh, much to be had there but our website's a great resource you can sign up for our webinars our listservs everything is 100% free so you know we really encourage folks to visit integration.samsa.gov, and there you can also request free initial consultation from any of our experts
0: Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that concludes our bonus podcast. Tune in soon. We'll have our, our regularly scheduled podcast soon. And of course, check us out at integratedcarenews.com. That's integratedcarenews.com. And check out our conference information at integratedcareconference.com. See you soon.